At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Look, I'd consider myself a realist, all right? But in philosophical terms, I'm what's called a pessimist. Um, okay, what's that mean? It means I'm bad at parties. I think human consciousness was a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. Well, that sounds god-fucking-awful, Rush. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self. This accretion of sensory experience and feeling. Programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody. When in fact, everybody's nobody. I think the honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming. Stop reproducing. Walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. So, what's the point of getting out of bed in the morning? I tell myself I bear witness. The real answer is that it's obviously my programming. And I lack the constitution for suicide. I get a bad taste in my mouth out here. Aluminum. Ash. Like you can smell the psychosphere. That's Russ for ya. He starts out as the cynical Archon Hunter, nihilistic and mystic at once crushing people's program conceptions, challenging empire status quo, lifting naga veils, and opening doors of perception. In other words, he's a perennial Gnostic revealer. Eventually, the powers and principalities break his body and torture his psyche. But in the end, he resurrects and connects with the eternal realm and ecstatically experiences Sophia herself, literally. He's alchemically transformed and readies to fight yet again the demonic Yellow King. The greatest trick God ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Be like Rust in True Detective Season 1. It's more important than ever, certainly to experience Sophia. How are you gonna do that? By once again materializing at the virtual Alexandria, that state of mind where East meets West, and enter the Agora of Aeon Bagnostic Radio. There, You'll encounter Gnostic truths and astral guests with viewpoints not found anywhere else on the internets. It's the only way to battle the Yellow King or Jehovah or whatever your head wants to call that wickedness in high places. And your version of Rust 
won't be a projection, actually, but a myth-making that will reveal your instincts on the reality of reality were true all along. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. So many astral guests at Aeon Bite. As amazing and beautiful as you are, once you wake up from this nightmare called consensus reality. As Evelyn Underhill wrote, Sanity consists in sharing the hallucinations of our neighbors. A reality is just what we tell each other it is. Sane and insane could easily switch places if the insane were to become the majority. You would find yourself locked in a padded cell, wondering what happened to the world. Our guess in this eternal now is very rust-like. Truly an individual I admire and whose work has kindled so much meaning in the darkness of mere being. A friend and fellow raging Gen X and an underrated thinker this world needs more than ever. That is Chris Knowles, who arrives at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss his debut novel, He Will Live Up in the Sky. What an immersive read, not the cliché of a page-turner, but more like the archetype of a page-turner. And the characters in the story are both archetypal and real. And the plot is entertaining as it is haunting. For Chris brings his own inner rust and years of penetrating research from the secret sun to bear in He Will Live Up in the Sky. The novel is semi-autobiographical. Not just for Chris, but every person enduring in the Black Iron Prison. As well as a classic Phil Dickian work where the lines of reality and fiction are blurred during and after you read the work. I'm afraid what you're describing is schizophrenia. No, no, it's not schizophrenia. It's just a voice in my head. Chris will talk all about this in our interview with plenty of Gnosticism, ufology, conspiracy culture, and how writing is the ultimate form of magic. Like Russ's views, it's bleak, but we gotta go arc on hunting and crush all those program conceptions implanted in the collective consciousness of civilization before it's too bloody late. Where hope dies, imagination must live. And as Cesar A. Cruz wrote, art should disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. So be wise, because the world needs more wisdom. Break rules. Leave the world more interesting for your being here. Make good art. We are all Gnostic revealers in the becoming, and writing our own gospel and living our own myth often means entering the abyss. The horror of existence that Joseph Campbell wrote about. As Chris himself wrote, The truth doesn't always set you free. 
Sometimes it saddles you with a burden you can never escape. So choose very carefully where you decide to start digging and what dragons you choose to slay. Prepare to be taken places you never wanted to go. Gnosis isn't always a flower. Sometimes it's a sword. Maybe more often than not. We're born alone, we die alone. Everything else can be fixed with Photoshop. Maybe the human race deserves to be wiped out. And as I answered to a listener who mentioned that meditation was igniting a lot of pain and fear in him, enlightenment was never supposed to be bliss, but horror with a newfound sense of humor. That's the secret of Buddha's smile. That's the red pill. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. There's no easy way to fight the Yellow King. I mean, I get annoyed when cats like Jordan Peterson say that we live in a time of greatest prosperity and peace. That's nice and all, my fellow ex-clonopin addict. But guess what? Depression, alcoholism, addiction, homelessness, and suicide are all on the rise. We're not being mowed down by machine guns on the beaches of Normandy, but our souls are being crushed by the unbearable weight of consumerism and divide-and-conquer swamp gas. We're increasing military budgets and raising taxes while mental health care funding is being slashed and initiation institutions for both men and women are closing like the legs of a girl at an incel convention. Whoa. This is all by design and most of the population has had their rectums shoved with blue pill suppositories to the point we can't face our collective shadow. How about another joke, Murray? No, I think we've had enough of your jokes. What do you get? I don't think so. When you cross a mentally ill loner with a society that abandons him and beats him like trash! Call the police, I'm telling you what you get! Call the police! Get what you fucking deserve! We need to forget about the useless war on drugs and war on terrorism and start a war against the raw deal Russ spoke about, which is consensus reality. A war against sanity itself because it's ultimately a construct of hating angels and alien mind parasites. Or whatever your myth-making calls that wickedness in high places. Going back to Evelyn's quote on sanity, C.G. Jung himself once said, Show me a sane man and I will cure him for you. Do you know what crazy is? Crazy is majority rules. Yeah, uh. This is our last chance as a species before Yaldi Baldi hides the stolen divine sparks of Sophia and conceals them in another life form on another planet or places them in robots as we march into the gulags of transhumanism. My replicants will live as long or as short as a customer will pay. My replicants will never rebel. They will never run. They will simply obey. Yeats, I wonder what's the latest outrage I can shoot up the veins of my rationality. 
Should I make Marvel or DC or Star Wars or Disney my new religion of group thought? Look, there's an article about what's coming or leaving Netflix this month. Oh my God, I wonder what politician will give me security if I just hand over my individuality. Oh, I'm so worried movie box office receipts are lower than last year. Or is there a, a, a woke version of Baby It's Cold Outside this holiday season? What a shit show. Hey, der, if you do anything wrong in your life, duh, and I find out about it, I'm going to try to take everything away from you. And I don't care what I find out. Could be today, tomorrow, 15, 20 years from now. If I find out, you're fucking duh, finished. Unlike normies and NPCs and the catamites of the establishment, we will experience Sophia if we continue like Rust and Chris Knowles. As Chris has also written, Gnosticism is an outsider proposition, an introvert's game. In the end, we Gnosticoi are all displaced, and recognizing it is the first step to our arc on hunting. As Chris further writes, So the problem is simple, and one begins to understand how the Gnostics saw it. Man, then, is a lifelong exile on a planet which is a prison for all mankind. He lives in a body which is a prison for the soul. He is the autochthon of a lost and invisible world. After all this time, a switch goes off just like that. Be like Rust. Be who you are meant to be before falling into this so-called sane world. There must be some kind of way out of here. Chris continues to show us, and certainly this is shown in his novel, He Will Live Up in the Sky. Let's check it out. The Empire Never Ended. You don't talk. You watch talk shows. You don't play games. You watch game shows. Travel, relationships, risk. Every meaningful existence must be packaged and delivered to you to watch at a distance so that you can remain ever sheltered, ever passive, ever ravenous consumers who can't free themselves to rise from their couches to break a sweat. Never anticipate new life. You want superheroes to protect you and make yourselves ever more powerless in the process. Well, you tell yourselves you're being looked after, that you're inches from being served and your rights are being upheld, so that the system can keep stealing from you, smiling at you all the while. Go ahead, send your supers to stop me. Grab your snacks, watch your screens, and see what happens. You are no longer in control. I am.
This is the Ayumbide interview. And with us, as always, we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Chris Knowles. This time to discuss his novel, if I want to say quote-unquote fiction, as you'll see. But it was a great read. His novel, He Will Live Up in the Sky. How you doing, Chris? And glad to have you back. Oh, I'm doing great, and it's a real pleasure being back on the Aeon Bite Show. Always glad to have you on, my friend. I'm, I'm, I'm honored. I'm very deeply honored. Very deeply honored. Honor is all ours, my friend. And with us, we've got the Moondog, Van Sachi. How are you doing, Vance? Oh, I'm hovering at about 300 feet. Going to turn on my cow abduction ray. Well, there you uh, go. Momentarily. There you go. Well, there's. <laughs> There's a lot of this discussion going on, which uh, for he will live up in the sky, and I really enjoyed the book. As I told you, Chris, uh, it was a page-turner. You know it's a good book when you've got about 50 pages and you're going, ah, shit, this book's eventually going to end, and I'm not going to be happy about this. So even if I wanted to know what the ending is, I was enjoying I was enjoying the pace. I was enjoying everything, and uh but And I thought when you messaged me a while back and you said, hey, I got this novel coming up, I was like, wow, did Chris do like a Philip K. Dick or Stephen King and just pump it out? But no, you've been uh, working on this for a long, long time. Yeah, I had actually announced it in back in 2015. <laughs> There's actually a blog post uh, in March of 2015. I was like, I yeah, I'm working on a book. It's going to be out soon. <laughs> <laughs> soon, famous last words. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it just took a long time. I mean, I had the basic structure of the plot set in very early on, but I needed to find, well, first of all, I needed to find the characters. The characters needed to sort of reveal themselves to me. Um, I needed to change, I, I did a lot of rewriting, um, and there's a lot of material that I left out. Uh, you know, because, you, you know, you start off your first book, you're like, oh, I'm going to write the great American novel and it's going to be like <laughs> a thousand pages long. And then you realize mm, that's probably not that great of an idea. So I, I really pared down the focus. But, um, you know, through the through the writing of the book, the characters began to sort of make themselves known to me. And the tenor of the book changed. And I, I really wanted to write a book that was um, had a lot of information had a lot of, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, spiritual content, but was also very, very entertaining. I wanted to write a book that's a thrill ride. And, you know, like you said, a page turn. I'm very, very gratified that you say that. I wanted to write a book that was a thrill ride that, you know, really kept people off kilter going through the motions and sort of put you in the, uh, you know, in the shoes of the, of the main characters who, who are drawn into this world of you know intelligence agents and remote viewing and ufos and all this kind of stuff that they just have absolutely no concept of they 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 just completely oblivious to it you know i i didn't want to get into like the whole uh you know that well-worn x-files template where it's like one believes in it and one doesn't believe in it and i didn't want to i didn't want to have them be believers or skeptics i just wanted them to be just total novices and just drawn into this world and not believing what they're experiencing because I, I sort of see them as representatives of the audience. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important. I think one of the things that's important when you're writing these kind of stories is to always 
give the audience, um, you know, there's a voice in there where the audience can sort of say, all right, well, I identify with that person who doesn't believe any of this and, and offers this sort of very compelling contrary uh, explanation to what these characters are experiencing. And I, I, I came to the realization that's, that I, I believe personally that's the only effective way to tell these kind of stories. But, you know, as you can tell by the title, I mean, the title, there's a lot of Gnostic Christianity in here. There's a lot of uh, uh, sort of postmodern Christology. I'm, I'm sort of looking at the, uh, the collapse of faith. Uh, you know, particularly the collapse of the Catholic faith, you know, being from New England and, and, and seeing and experiencing all that. So it took me a very long time because there's a lot of information. There's a lot of balls that I needed to juggle and tell a really fun, exciting story. So, you know, I really, you know, put a lot on my play for that. Yeah, great job. And of course, uh, I mean, it is a very much a secret son novel. People who've read your blogs will see a lot of the plot lines. Uh, of course, I saw a lot of the characters. But at the end of the day, it's got to be character-driven. We have to like the characters and feel engaged. And as you said, the two main characters, Porter and Darja, I believe, they were, uh, they're just basically two like hired, gr hired guns, two uh, private dicks who get thrown into this horrible octopus world here in the United States. And, uh, it was, uh, it, it just, we just go down this, uh, rabbit hole with them. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because as I was doing a lot, you know, as I was working on the book, I was doing a tremendous amount of research, you know, I was doing a tremendous amount of reading. Uh, and you really, get, you know, you start to realize that, um, you know, that octopus has got its, you know, tentacles everywhere. Um, so many, you know, you pick up so many rocks and you start looking and, and you know, you, you find that octopus, you know. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, it, you know, that's, a, that's an experience that I really wanted the characters to be able to relate to that, um, they are, um, delving into a world that is very real. And I, I wanted to, and that's another important thing. And I wanted to be as real as possible. It's very easy to sort of write a thriller or, you know, an occult detective story or so on and so forth. And there, you know, there are a bunch of conventions that you can fall back on and there, you know, certain impulses that the people come to expect. And I wanted to avoid all of those. I wanted to avoid all the traps that I saw a lot of these kind of books falling into. And I think you hit it on the head about, again, it's interesting. You can put all this data, all this news about, I said, the octopus, what our government is doing, the supernatural, uh, the deep state, all that. But maybe it doesn't stick, but when you do put it in your novel, it sticks more. And I'm thinking, why? Well, because I was seeing through the eyes of this character. I was seeing what it did to my family members. I was seeing what it did to the neighborhoods. I was seeing it firsthand. And it was uh, it was much more, it was horrific. You know, I could read a Secret Sun blog post and, oh, okay, they did that and experimented on some kids. But when I'm through the eyes of the characters, that's when it hits home. So, I mean, that's one reason we write fiction, right? Well, you know, I'll tell you something. This, this. I remember hearing this this report on NPR uh, maybe about ten years ago, and it was talking about like languages that died out, and why did certain languages die out, and why did other languages persist? And 
Um, one of the reasons is because the, the, the languages that, that tend to survive have a corpus of literature attached to them. And I sort of saw this in the same context as, as cultures, is that cultures need to tell stories. Cultures need to um, persuade people as to their point of view through narrative, through stories. It's, it's really not enough to uh, bombard people with information. And, it, and of course, it gets very tough because, you know, a lot of people will want to read, um, you know, a, a nonfiction book that explains uh, certain historical or philosophic ideas but i think there's a very well-earned tendency to uh, be very leery of of fiction because there's a lot of bad fiction and there's a lot of bad fiction that's you know propaganda you know that 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 somebody is is writing fiction just to propagate their their worldview and and does so poorly and and again like i said i mean one one of the reasons that it took me so long to write a one of the reasons, there are other reasons, but one of the reasons it took me so long to, to finish this book is that I, I would find myself drifting into those impulses, you know, as I said, because it's easy to, you know, it's when you're trying to solve problems, there's so many problems that you're trying to solve in, in a fictional narrative. And it's just so easy to take the, you know, the, the familiar way out. And I wanted to take the difficult way out. I wanted to, as, as often as I could, to, you know, to ramp up the jeopardy, to ramp up the sort of intrigue, to ramp up the connections and, and, you know, do so, you know, that the, I want the readers to feel very off balance, you know, as the characters do, because the characters are finding themselves in a world that they have absolutely no concept of. And they're hired to do this job, not because of their experience in this world, but because of other reasons, because, you know, the person who hires them realizes that they have, you know, that they have needs, you know, that they're, they're sort of, they're broken people, right. uh, you know, they're broken people who don't have a lot of other places to go. Uh, and, and that's another thing that I, I thought was really important because I used to listen to a lot of um, audiobooks while I was, uh, was doing a lot of illustration and storyboards and stuff. And one thing I noticed about a lot of thrillers and, and detective stories and so on is that the characters are all perfect. It just drives you crazy. It's like, oh, you know, uh, she was the top of her class at Harvard and, <laughs> yeah. and then became, you know, an expert um, Green Beret. And she runs 20 miles every morning before she has her breakfast and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, who can relate to these damn characters? You know, <laughs> yeah. it's just so obvious that they just like, um, you know, w- you know what they call Mary Sue, uh, you know, Mary Sue of, of all genders where it's just like the, 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 the author is, is projecting their, their, I guess their inadequacies, inadequacies onto these fantasy characters, you know? And, but I, I just, you know, those stories are so impenetrable because I can't, identify with the characters you know and i wanted characters that that are very very broken (laughs) that are very damaged that are very um you know that they had their chances and they blew them and 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 that to me is is an interesting situation you know for for drama and for you know for interaction uh, you know, as, as far as that's concerned but again i mean i also there are a lot of ideas here there are a lot of um 
stories and information, things that I've researched, a lot of things that will pe- people will be familiar from in the blog, because as I was researching these things, I was blogging about them, and then I was putting them into the story. You know, I want this to be, uh, you know, books that I, I really am inspired by is um, uh, For Colt's Pendulum by Umberto Eco. Oh, yeah. He's a huge uh, inspiration. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge inspiration for this story. And, you know, and even in some ways, the books are satire and they're absurdist, but, you know, the Illuminatus trilogy, you know, uh, certainly are um, inspirations here. And, and also, of course, Valis. You know, Valis is, is just a, a huge inspiration for me uh, in, in so many ways. And, and it, it's interesting, too, because I'm actually not as impressed by, um, you know, Philip K. Dick's uh, fiction writing as I was just really captivated by his, you know, the exegesis and, uh, or exegesis, I should say, uh, and his, you know, his spiritual writings, uh, you know, and, and I, I feel like you get so much of a better sense of, of, of who he was and, and what his stories are about. Uh, and, oh, and also another book that, uh, you know, another Philip K. Dick book that really inspired me was Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Um, and and it inspired me in a strange way, but it definitely inspired me. Yes, I I mean, in that book, it's again you talk about broken people. That book, uh, it seems everybody's broken, and in your novel, he will live up in the sky. Not just the main characters, Chris. Every character that you could connect to was severely broken and shattered by an unforgiving, brutal system. The government, uh, secret agencies, secret societies. It was, uh, it was very painful to really connect with these characters. Well, um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to scare people you know, by saying that because you know they all seem to be very good natured about their <laughs> predicaments in some ways. Yeah, they had a no, sense I, of humor. I, I, they I, enjoyed I, going out to eat and having sex and all that. But once you get under the hood, whew. <laughs> yeah. Well, I see. But this is this is based in part to you know my study of of that world. You know, you when you look under the hood with a lot of these people involved in intelligence or involved in uh, ufology or involved in uh, psi research, you know, there's always, it, it always seems that there's some sort of compulsion driving them, there's, you know, often trauma, often tragedy, you know, really something that pushes them, you know, in these fields that um, most people have no concept of and, and most people have no real respect for. So I, I think that that's an important thing that, you know, people who are involved in, in, in a lot of these pursuits um, have, have very good reasons to, to do so. Uh, you know, especially when it's not, you know, um, for something that, you know, they're going to get recognition for, you know what I'm saying? Um, so I, I, I think that was just something that I really needed to explore and, and to explain because that to me um, is part of the reality that I was trying to, to tell through fiction. And another thing you were talking about changing religions, it seemed to me that in this intelligence world, the the real one, that what they're looking for 
are true believers. A lot of these characters, the managerial ones, were true believers, and they wanted the protagonists, Darja and Porter, to become true believers in in what they were. And of course, the quote-unquote bad guys, these guys were completely drinking their own dark occult Kool-Aid. So isn't that basically it? I mean, these people, are they're just not collecting paychecks. They really believe in this shit. Well, you know, that's, you know, when you talk about villains, um, to me, I've always had this theory that the, the worst supervillains or villains are true believers. And they do what they do, not because they're not driven by malice or spite or, or some, you know, psychopathy, so to speak. They're driven by um, their beliefs. And the ends justify the means, and you know it's for the greater good. All these sort of terms that can uh, excuse uh, horror—that um, that you can get away with uh, doing really terrible things because, in the in the end result, it's it's for the greater good. We're serving a greater purpose. Um, there's a, a a columnist who I used to read, uh, a guy named. Um, well, his, his pseudonym is, is Gary Brecker. He used to call himself the war nerd. And, and one of the things he talked about uh, that, that I thought was just so true is that, you know, the worst colonialist, uh, you know, the worst British colonialist who would carry out the most horrific massacres and, and the worst atrocities were the most religious. You know, and it's like, you know, when you hear devoutly religious, you know, when you hear a devoutly religious pro council is coming to your village, you know, run for the hills. Uh, it's it's really true. I, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think it's become such a cliche to sort of um, bash religion. And, 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 and I think there's a lot of uh, hyperbole and, and, and drama queenism about it. You know, uh, you know, when you see a lot of bashing of evangelicals or the catholic church or i mean they're both guilty of, of plenty of bad things but i i think that there's just a tendency to really go overboard you know and make them scapegoats for other people's sins but you know i really believe that the people who do the worst damage uh do so you know you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions they do so out of the the, the most uh you know the, what they see as the noblest uh with noblest instincts the noblest is, uh you know motivations that that they see themselves as um saviors and you know if you just you know if you read your bible um the, the entire book is just full of horrific things being done you know, because um, it serves the, the greater purpose, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the heaven on earth and so on and so forth. I mean, I think a lot of those stories are fictional. I, I think, and I know a lot of them are, are like stellar uh, myths, but, you know, nonetheless, I mean, it's something that I think has been ingrained and, in. you know, you're not going to find any shortage of, of examples in, in recent history. I mean, look no further than the Khmer Rouge or something like that. You know that 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 the salvation comes atop um, uh, piles of skulls, so to speak. You know, and and I and again, that's a, another idea that I really wanted to explore because I think when you look at people like uh, who are involved in in MK Ultra or you know the the successor or predecessor programs, if you look at people involved in various kinds of human experimentation, uh, you know, particularly on children. Um, they always justify it, you know, through, uh, you know, a salvational, uh, you know, 
uh, explanation that, that they are doing, you know, God's work and you need to, um, break a few eggs if you want to make a delicious omelet and that kind of thing, you know, and that's really something that I, I, I really needed to, uh, to convey. And, and I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. So. Could you give the listener maybe a snapshot or a summary of your novel so they can, since we're talking, so they can get a framework of where this is going? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, the story starts out where a, um, a rock star uh, disappears from a stage during a concert performance. Uh, at the same time, uh, somebody is trying to shoot him uh, and he, he vanishes uh, and the, the, the thrust of the story is, is searching for him. You know, where did he go? Where did he disappear to? And um, doing so uh, uncovers, you know, it's like you lift up the rock and you know, there are all sorts of creatures under there. Oh, um, yeah. But the, uh, the, the shooter is, um, you know, I, this, is, this isn't going to be a spoiler because it's, it's really kind of part of the opening uh, chapter. I mean, the shooter is... Um, somebody who is uh, undergoing really um, extreme uh, mind control experimentation, uh, you know, the kind that, uh, you know, Jose Delgado was doing uh, at Yale and, and, and that kind of, um, you know, beyond Manchurian candidate uh, uh, experimentation. So uh, concurrently, um, this, the, the, the Stargate, program uh is shut down by the government and the the the, the people involved in, in you know running the remote viewing and so on for the department of defense uh privatize and they form uh, you know a private group that is meant to to essentially um press gang candidates into to remote viewing uh you know th there is a very sinister undertone to this that um the uh, the man running this program uh, hires Porter and Darger, who you had mentioned before, uh, to go out and and look for people who who you know they've been monitoring, uh, they've been watching you know all their lives in some cases, people who fit certain profiles, people who show certain uh, potentials or abilities. So um, you know it's it's a private uh, operation. So it's not necessarily um, answerable to Congress and to law enforcement and so on and so forth, you know, it can be uh, held behind uh, privilege, you know, corporate privilege. So, um, so this uh, retired um, DOD officer uh, forms this group to um, basically find uh, people who, who fit certain profiles and would be effective remote viewers. So, I mean, in some ways we're entering into a, you know, there is an element of science fiction in some regards here that, you know, I, I, I don't know if there are actually programs like this. I wouldn't be surprised if there were. But, you know, you're entering into a world where certain people are taking these uh, abilities for granted. But as science fiction as that sounds, I mean, one of the, the real in inspirations for this book was um, when I had been out at Esalen, when Jeff Kripal invited me to Esalen in 2008 and 2009, and I had listened to presentations by, um, by Russell Targ and uh, Ed May. Uh, Russell Targ sort of started the uh, remote viewing program at Stanford Research Institute and, and Ed May, who sort of uh, took over. Uh, he was, uh, I think uh, he was CIA. I don't, I, I don't think he was 
um, part of it. I mean, he was, and he was a real numbers cruncher too. So, I, you know, I mean, Russell Targa, I, you know, have very interesting conversations with him and, and, and Ed May, but Ed May was, you know, he's almost like a bureaucrat. He, he was almost like a numbers cruncher and, you know, he was not a woo guy, but, you know, I, I watched, you know, watched and listened to this uh, presentation where they talked about, you know, the percentage of successful operations that used, remote viewing, uh, you know, the, the, the percentage of various remote viewers, accuracy, um, you know, hits and misses, you know, it was like all these sort of spreadsheets in Excel, you know, it was very, <laughs> it was very dry and bureaucratic and corporate. I, and, and I was just, that really kind of got under my skin because I had always thought that remote viewing was just sort of like a hoax. You know, I just thought it was just like a, a silly Art Bell coast to coast kind of thing, and here I am in this private group, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's the invitation private, you know, private group, listening to, you know, the person who was running the program before, it, you know, eventually would be funded by Congress, um, you know, explain the uh, the rundown and 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 how everything worked and and you know the efficacy of of certain viewers, and I was just I was just like, wow, this this is not like you know. This is not a guy you would imagine buying into this, but you know there was this interesting confluence of um, uh, religious people, uh, you know, particularly within the military and in Congress, and the skeptic people who, you know, who, as we know now, are all, you know, we're all on the payroll for the CIA, or the DoD, or whomever. You know, people like, um, you know, the the Psychop and and those kind of organizations, uh, Phil's class, uh, so on and so forth, who, you know, were just clearly um, agents and uh, on, on various payrolls. And, and they sort of um, ganged up in a lot of, <laughs> a lot more occurrences than you might imagine. But what, one of their big projects was to end uh, remote viewing in uh, the early nineties. So I, I sort of take that as a, as a starting point, but what I really wanted to do was explore this um, overlap between, uh, you know, the, the research being done at SRI, uh, ufology, people like uh, Jacques Pelé, you know, who's there both years when I'd gone out there. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the whole surveillance, the, the burgeoning surveillance, internet, corporate, you know, electronics, <laughs> eavesdropping, all this, you know, how all this stuff kind of really mixed together and really sort of emerged out of the same soup, which, you know, is really fascinating. And I don't think a lot of people really understand just how deeply involved and deeply intertwined, um, you know, the internet and remote viewing and, and ufology and the paranormal and so on and so forth. We're all sort of floating around together in the same, you know, they're breathing the same air at the same time. And, um, you know, I don't, I didn't want to sort of go back to that. Well, because, you know, I, I feel like that's been covered more effectively in other uh, venues. So, you know, I, I wanted to sort of combine it with, you know, my own experiences and, and things that I, I knew, had greater knowledge of and, and take it to Massachusetts uh, you know, it's the story of Southern Massachusetts, because, I mean, Massachusetts was very much, uh, you know, the counterpart of that. You had the same elements, you had the same agencies, you had the same corporations, all sort of doing very similar work. Uh, 
and, and you know, the thing that I discovered, you know, in the course of writing this book is that, you know, project paperclip or operation paperclip happened, you know, <laughs> basically in my neighborhood, yeah, <laughs> in Jersey, blew yeah. my mind. I couldn't believe it. I was just like, <laughs> are you freaking kidding me? I, I just like, you know, it's like, I couldn't believe I went, you know, when I learned that, you know, it's like right off the coast of Wollaston, you know, which is where, um, you know, my folks lived before I was born and then my father moved back to after my folks split up, you know, so I spent a lot of time in that area and it's just like a couple hundred miles, not even, I mean, a couple hundred feet off the beach, you had, uh, you know, Fort Strong were all, you know, Warner Von Brown and all the rest of them were, um, were headquartered. They were flown in there after the war. I mean, they were flown into the, uh, the airfield in Squanton, which is at the end of uh, Wallston Boulevard. And I just couldn't believe that. And then finding out later that, uh, that uh, Whitey Bulger, the notorious gangster was, um, you know, he was living in Squanton. He was living a uh, hundred, you know, a hundred feet <laughs> so, I mean, right off the right, you know, right smack dab up next to uh, Long Island and Fort Strong. And, you know, and then it turns out he was involved with MK Ultra, And he's just like, yeah, you, you just head starts to spin because you just realize this. Oh my God, this stuff is ubiquitous. And, 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 you know, people just don't acknowledge it, and it's just everywhere. And you know, I did a lot of research into, um, and, you know, experiment, human experimentation, and, and that was really rough to go through. And I, I, I got to be honest with you, a lot of that stuff I ended up I uh, leaving out of the final draft because I, I just didn't want to go there. It was just, you know, it's just very disturbing. But, um, you know, I did want to make sure you got as, as much of that information as you could to just realize that this is real, you know, and this was very real. And, you know, the thing I say is that a lot of people don't believe that, you know, government agencies have been experimenting on children in hospitals and so on. But, um, you know, now they're doing it <laughs> quite openly, aren't they? You know? <laughs> and really, you know, they've been drug testing openly on children since you know, the eighties when they started in there with the Ritalin and all these kind of drugs and the Prozac and all these kind of things. So, and you know, now that's with the, the, the puberty blockers and the hormones and all that kind of thing. So I, 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 I don't think that people should really um, pretend or, or be surprised to hear that a lot of, you know, the stuff had been done prior, uh, you know, under classified uh, jurisdiction or uh, so on and so forth that, you know, I mean, it's, it's so obvious now, I, you know, I, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, but I, I think that, you know, this book in a lot of ways too, is it's sort of a eulogy for generation X, you know, that's kind of the way I see it because generation X, um, you know, were born be, you know, or right at the cusp of the counterculture and the Aquarian revolution and everything like that. And in many ways, you know, we ended up paying the price for it. You know, uh, parents um, in the seventies just decided to abdicate their, um, their duties in very many cases, you know, latchkey kids and, and so on and so forth. And, and um, I, I think that that neglect and, and that lack of oversight um, opened up uh, a lot of kids my age to, to predation, but also to sort of find themselves involved in, in some of these programs that I write about. So, I, you know, that's something I really wanted to explore without 
getting too dark. You know, I, I, I wanted to explore a lot of heavy things, like you said, and, and there are a lot of, you know, frightening, horrible things that happen in this story, but I didn't want to, you know, I don't want to bring people down too much. You know, I, I want, again, I want it to be entertaining because I, I want to give people sort of a sense of, you know, I don't necessarily say hope, but I, I want people to, to enjoy themselves, you know, people don't need to be any more depressed than they already are. You know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I got hope from the novel, except what I got is sometimes, I don't know if the good guys win, but the bad guys don't always win. They, they make a few mistakes and they do falter. So that was, uh, what, uh, and again, this is going against this giant machinery. I mean, your, your novel is not fiction because there's this giant machine, this octopus. It's right here on our shores. It's on different levels. Like you said, the internet, the media, the arts everywhere. It's, uh, it's pretty intense and, uh, you can, uh, you can't survive. I think that's what the novel taught me. You can't survive these horrible things and you can't do the right thing. But what do they always say? It costs for... you, but it costs you. Yeah, it always costs you. <laughs> you know, yes, yes, that's yes. the thing. About, yeah. They, and, you um, pay a price for it. But... Right, right. And you're talking about Generation X. It's like, we don't even exist. They have wiped us out from from marketing, from sales, from everything. They're just taking us out, taking our heroes, taking everything. So we are definitely invisible. I've noticed, but, but, um, yeah, uh, no, it's true. It is true. When I go to marketing, I'm, they always tell me, well, we gotta, we gotta, you know, kowtow and get these products to millennials or boomers or gen, gen Z's. And I go, I will say, well, what about gen X? And they look at me with a blank stare at these board meetings. Like what, who, what they don't, they don't, so cracks me up, but they say, yeah, uh, well, you know, what? we can't be blamed for anything. So you know, <laughs> that's the only good, you know, that's the only upside is that, you know, don't blame me. I'm generation X, you know, <laughs> we just wanted, yeah. Doc Martens and CDs. That, that's all we cared about. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And that, they say, there's a saying, Chris, that goes, uh, sooner or later, a writer sells out everyone he or she knows. So who did you sell out, Chris, or who didn't you sell out? Um, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. I do. Okay. I'm um, going gonna, gonna to say what there is a character. He is uh, steeped in the occult, a magician, brilliant. He's gay. Of course, I said, is that Gordon? That was my first thing. He was Dutch. He's European. He's European. But... <laughs> my lips are sealed. Yes, yes. I know you're not going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you 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 can't help but be in 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 inspired by people around you. Um I mean, uh, you're talking about the the character Brule. Um yeah, exactly. you know, Brule is not um he he didn't start out to be like Gordon, but um he he's definitely somebody who would have hung out with Gordon, I think. You know, if they had known each other, they probably would have hit it off pretty well. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but he's also, um, I guess he's the closest to a believer, uh, in the story because, um, you know, one of the uh, chapters that I uh, published on the blog was, um, sort of the introduction where, you know, we end up getting a lot of exposition dumped on your head and you sort of introduce to this world. And, um, Brule is the character that seems the most interested into it, but he's also, I mean, he's, 
he's not necessarily a believer. He's just, he's a skeptic that, um, he's a true skeptic. I think is, is the best way to put it. I mean, he's a skeptic in that, um, he can be, uh, persuaded he's persuadable. And, uh, you know, through the course of the story, you know, when all these crazy things start piling up on top of each other, he, he's, he drinks the Kool-Aid as Darja says, um, you know, or he crosses over to the dark side, uh, you know, at least in, in part, but I, I think that's, uh, you know, up to his, um, nature, uh, you know, as a, as a curious and inquisitive person. So, uh, um, you know, <laughs> anybody else, <laughs> any other allegorical, uh, personas? That you yes, yes, you actually. Know? Yes. Yes. I've got another one for you. Who was the, uh, who is the big, uh, the writer, Alice Keys? She reminded me she's a big writer who wrote about uh, being possessed or being abducted. So, of course, I thought of a female Whitley Strieber. So, let me know if I was hot or cold or what was going on with her. Um, you know, actually, it's funny you should mention that because she's actually not Whitley Strieber. Um uh, if if you read um, the chapter when Darger and Porter are interviewing her, she's she's clearly um, incredibly uh, delusional. Um, I, I would say that uh, she's more Kathy O'Brien than Whitley Strieber. Um, I, I think that that's sort of uh, if you want to hear her voice, you know. Or even like a, a, a Carla Turner, I, I think is probably more, um, more, more the more the inspiration for that. But she's, you know, she's her own character. She's. I'm not allegorizing anybody here, but you know, if if you wanted to know the kind of thinking that I was processing when writing her, I, I think a Carla Turner or a Kathy O'Brien would would probably be, you know, closer to, uh, you know, being in that wheelhouse than Whitley. But, um, you know, I, I was definitely sort of harkening back to that era when you had a lot of those books. You had Intruders and you had Communion and, uh, you know, sort of a number of those books. You had a lot of people going on, on Oprah and uh, Phil Donahue, so Geraldo, talking about, you know, abductions and so on and so forth. And she's very much a product of that era. Yeah, and what about uh, my favorite character as we spoke uh, when we were messaging was uh, Don Morton, the sort of a psychopathic, killer, preppy kind of guy. And he also has a, I, th I saw the, the Vallis forces, the Jeff Buckley forces, so much of, you know, your energies passing through him when I found out about his backstory and just looked at him and he has sort of a David Bowie vibe. So he was my favorite character. Well, yeah, you know, you had mentioned that he's like very much like kind of a trickster character. Right. Um, he had an interesting genesis because he was, he sort of came, he was, uh, he came into the story through, uh, an earlier incarnation in the book that had a lot more flashback material. And he was just sort of a bit character. He was, there was a, um, a children's television host who, um, uh, had ended up uh, beating uh, a young boy to death uh, in, in a hotel room. Uh, and Don Morton sort of shows up and he's sort of the network fixer uh, who sort of takes care of everything. And, um, but again, it's just this 
fascinating process where these characters tell you their own stories. They tell you who they are. They tell you who, you know, what their life experiences are. And, uh, you know, as with all the characters, you know, they're not um, stand-ins or, or uh, you know, sock puppets for, for anyone in particular. I mean, there are a lot of different uh, inspirations, you know, behind the characters. But Don Morton is a character who, who really fascinated me because um, I wanted to um, uh, explore a character who uh, is, is a hero. He's very heroic. But he's also very psychopathic, and he's psychopathic. You know, uh, uh, one character says, you know, um, he, he has no compunctions about killing anyone who ruins his day, and um, you know that's something. You know, that's a character. It was a very interesting character, right? Because it it runs the danger of becoming a cartoon. And I wanted him to be very real. And, you know, I wanted to, you know, with all the characters that you sort of, you know, when, when a particular chapter focuses on them, you sort of, you know, you're hearing them tell their own story. And, and, and Don Morton is, um, he's dissociative and he's, um, you know, he's he referred to as being criminally insane, but he's able to channel his, his psychopathic urges, you know, mostly into doing you know, good and right. But when, uh, when bad things happen to him, he's, um, really driven to overkill. So yeah, he is a, he is very much a trickster character and he is very much, um, you know, he's almost like the good joker, I guess. You would say. The good joker. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. you know, it's just that kind of impulse where it's somebody who's experienced a lot of tragedy and a lot of, um, you know, trauma in his life that, that very deeply changed him. And, and, you know, uh, you know, it's with all the other characters very deeply broke him, but he had enough, uh, character to sort of, um, channel it more or less in the direction of doing good. So, uh, you know, and maybe that was sort of a part of his coping mechanism that you know it, doing good is, is a way of, of uh, maybe atoning for, 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 for evil things that he's done so it, just a very interesting character and, and it's character that um, you know I want people to never be able to pin down you, you know uh, you can never really pin down which you know one of the characters says you know I never know which, which version of you I'm getting and that's that's something that I really wanted to explore. And uh, I, I will tell you now that I have sort of the basic structure of, of the, um, the sequel, <laughs> the second chapter in the story, you know, the second book. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, Don Martin, uh, Don Morton, <laughs> Don Martin, Don Dean Martin. Martin <laughs> uh, yeah. Don Morton will play a much, uh, much larger role than he does in this book, but you will also see a lot more of his, um, his dark side. I mean, that's something that I really want to explore and, 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 you know, get into the backstory and, and how he came about because, you know, I think it's very important because this is a very Gnostic book. This is a, this is a book, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure you picked up on the, you know, the, 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 the Christological symbolism that, that I, I sort of weave through it. And, and you know, oh, even yeah. in the title, you know, he will live up in the sky, you know, it's like, um, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, really impart that, that, that this is very much, um, 
you know, a kind of a Gnostic retelling of, of the gospel story uh, in, in some parts. You know, I, I know that sounds just ridiculously pretentious and, and, and probably might scare people. But again, uh, you know, all sort of baked into the thrill ride. But I, I really wanted to, um, you know, to explore this stuff because, uh, you know, being from, uh, from Massachusetts, being from Boston, Massachusetts, being from a town where the Archdiocese of Boston, with all its um, attendant sins and transgressions, is, is, is now located, uh, being from the town where the man who is actually, who's actually been bankrolling the, uh, who, well, he's passed away now, but he was, the man who was bankrolling the, the Archdiocese of Boston and, and was basically running it. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but there was a, a real estate developer um, named, uh, oh, why am I blanking on his name now? But there was a real estate developer from Braintree who um, was basically running the Catholic Church and was and, and had the ear of the Cardinal throughout the, you know, when, when Cardinal Law was, was running this cover-up and, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, that was really coming out of the town that I grew up in. And, um, you know, I don't really go into the town that I grew up in as I have in the blog. You know, a lot of the material that I, I had researched, you know, just ended up on the blog instead of in the book. But um, I, I wanted to really explore how people you know, try to find meaning and try to find, you know, substitute Christ because we had the, you know, rock stars in the sixties, fifties and sixties. And that's really when, uh, you know, church attendance began to really drop off, you know, and a belief in, in Orthodox religion really began to drop off in the post-war era in the fifties and sixties. You saw the rock stars sort of became like these substitute gods. And, and now, uh, you know, if you go up to Massachusetts, you know, you cross the, um, you cross the border from Connecticut, New York, and, and you stop, you know, at one of these kind of rest areas with like McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts and everything, and everybody's wearing sports gear. So it's basically like the Patriots and the oh, Red Sox, yeah. <laughs> the Bruins have become like the substitute church, you know, because um, you know, I grew up, you know, I mean, post Vatican II, but uh, I, I don't think that it, it really had sunk in yet. And I think that, you know, uh, being in a a town that was very heavily Irish, uh, well, Irish and Italian, it was like this weird mix of Irish, Italian, and like, you know, the English, the old English folks, you know, it was like weird sort of, you know, uh, uneasy peace, I guess you would say, between these three main populations. But, um, you know, so you had the English and and, and then, you know, the, the settlers and the Puritans and the pilgrims who had sort of lost their faith, I guess, at, you know, maybe sometime, you know, in, in the 20th century, you know, you can't really pinpoint, but definitely um, after the war that, you know, the, the families started getting smaller and church attendance started dropping. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, in, even in the wake of Vatican II, that um, uh, Catholics in, in cities like Boston and Chicago and, uh, you know, maybe New York, parts of New York sort of held in, you know, they held strong. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, that period with the, uh, the priests and everything in the early uh, part of the two uh, thousands, um, I think really did a number on that. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the statistics bear that out, but it's interesting too, because, you know, the book is set in 1994 and that's, that was sort of the first wave 
you know, I don't really go into that material, but that was sort of the first wave of um, the pre-scandals that were really starting to emerge, you know, in places like Boston and, and New Orleans, you know, very heavily Catholic areas where the, um, the truth was starting to come out. And, you know, I think that the, the consequences of that have been, um, you know, I, I, I think they've been catastrophic. Um, you know, you know, when you realize when you have your Gnostic awakening, your, your reluctant Gnostic awakening that, you know, your, your pastors, you know, your, your shepherds uh, are, um, yeah. <laughs> abusing the sheep, <laughs> so to, <laughs> to say the least, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I mean, but it, but I really wanted to explore that, uh, and I really wanted to explore, um, you know, like how ufology becomes a substitute religion, and that, um, you know, uh, the the character who's sort of running the show um, gets into, uh, you know, sigh and and remote viewing and all these kind of things after he has a near death experience. So, you know, I wanted to sort of really delve into without being explicit without drawing attention to itself but sort of present okay in the wake of the collapse of traditional religion this is how people you know had had looked for meaning you know if you're writing that same story today i mean i I think most people have or a lot of people have just sort of collapsed into just utter nihilism uh you know but i i think in the period you know the book is set in 19 and also the book uh, i should also mention is um set in you know in the days following the the death of kurt cobain so you know that sort of pops up uh you know in in, in various characters conversations uh you know is is setting the tone you know for the story and a lot of people chris might be saying okay he's got the two characters porter and darja and we know Chris, so there must be the huge parallels to a Scully and Mulder, the two Gnostic Christ or revealers in their own adventure. But I see them; they're they're actually very different. Oh, yeah, oh, they are very different, and I, I, I'm glad you see that. Um, yeah. I, it's funny because I, I realized that I was kind of setting myself up for that by <laughs> by having um, you know those characters. Um, you know, but at the same time, they're they're not like Mulder and Scully in, in in the fact that they're not, you know, engaged in this sort of dynamic, and they're not like you know super FBI agents who are you know at the top of their class and all this kind of stuff. I mean, they're, they're very much the opposite of that. But they also exist in an ecosystem that I, I don't really think Mulder and Scully exist in. I mean, the, the focus you know in the X Files is always on Mulder and Scully. It's always you know, the stories being told through their point of view. And I, you know, what I really tried to do is that this is, you know, very much an ensemble story. I mean, yeah, those are the, the characters who are going to be driving a lot of the, uh, of the story moving along, but, you know, they're not the only drivers and, and they, they're part of a group that is a group. And I think that's much more realistic. I mean, you know, I love the X-Files, obviously, um, um, or maybe it's better to say I'm, you know, um, neurotically obsessed with it, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's the, the X-Files isn't, isn't, isn't real. I mean, characters in the FBI, you know, FBI agents would never be able to get away with the things that they get away with. And they'd never operate the way that they operate, you know, um, you know, I, I really come to the conclusion and, and I, I, I've written about this on the blog that, I'm not exactly sure that the uh, the X Files is about two characters sort of investigating the paranormal. I, th- I think it, the series 
And there are a lot of reasons for this, a lot of very compelling reasons. This, I think the series is about like these two um, specimens um, in a eugenics program that are being mind controlled uh, to carry out assassins, you know, to take out all the failures of that eugenics program. I, it's, it's so funny because it's like, you know, it's one of these fan theories, you know, and it's just another fan theory, but uh, the, um, the evidence is rather compelling. And, and one of the things being is that, um, you know, mind control pops up all the time in, in that series. And, and a lot of the uh, mythology stories, uh, you know, quote unquote, are always paired with stories either about mind control or about magic mushrooms or LSD or, or something like that. You know, it's, it's throughout the entire series, it always pair those two stories together, you know, right, one would yeah, follow yeah. the other, you know what I mean? And I'm just like, what, what, what were we really watching here? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a, uh, X-Files is a romantic quest. Um, it's, it's a classic romantic quest. I, you know, it's possible, you know, and I, I didn't want to write that. Uh, I wanted to write not necessarily the, the antithesis of that, but I, I wanted to avoid that because I could never do it better than they did. And, you know, I, I think it's sort of been digested by the culture and, and it's time has passed. And, um, you know, there are other things that I wanted to explore, you know. You were talking about, yeah, your novel, The the Evanescing of Old Religions. Uh, I think it's symbolized in the, the, the prescient psychic nun who's a character in your book. But... At the same time, as you've written, Chris, these religions are pretty much uh, given to us. They're engineered uh, from high on, from from above. So what religion is, and your book, of course, is predicting what the religion is in the 21st century. Could we say it's not not sports, but could the new religion be conspiracy culture? Is that where we're heading to? Is that what our Lord Mithras wants us to do? <laughs> I've always said that the Gnostics were like the, the original conspiracy theorists, you know, uh, you know, the Gnostics are really sort of the first indication. I mean, I, you, you know, maybe you could look at the, you know, Zoroastrians or something, but I, I think that the Gnostics are really sort of the first, you know, major movement in history where it's, they're looking at what's going on around them and, and saying, this is like literally a conspiracy. This is literally a plot against us. This is literally, um, you know, an illusion being presented to deceive us and to mislead us. So I, I, you know, I've always said that, that these are Gnostic times, you know, and I've always said the problem is is that Gnosticism is not always going to manifest the way you wish it to, uh, you know, if you look at the middle East, um, you know, a lot of Gnostic groups, you know, might not be to the taste of, you know, uh, sort of a, a college educated cosmopolitan in, 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 in a, in a American coastal city, you know, I mean, uh, Gnosticism doesn't always manifest itself the way, um, you know, and Elaine Pagels might prefer it to, uh, and you know, I don't want, I don't want to dunk on her. I have tremendous respect for her, but I mean, even no, ancient Gnostic cults had a lot of, uh, unsavory, uh, rites and so on and so forth. And, oh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, the question <laughs> then becomes were they, were they true Gnostic cults or was it all sort of lumped together? 
you know, Jay Kinney had sort of said that he sort of saw the Gnostic movement as being kind of like the new age in that it was an umbrella term that sort of, you know, included a lot of different practices and, 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 and rituals and so on and so forth. So I, I think that, um, you know, we are in a Gnostic age and Gnosticism is not going to proceed to everyone's taste because it's, 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 it's by nature uh, an idiosyncratic and not, you know, in an all enveloping movement. So you are going to have, uh, you know, for instance, like Q people, you know, um, you are going to have, uh, you know, that this whole cringy uh, Lucian Greaves Satanism kind of thing pop up. You are going to have, uh, you know, le- uh, left wing conspiracy theorists, Russia Gate, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to have uh, a, a number of different. I mean, you know, the the, the sort of um, you know esoteric trans people. You know that they have this idea that this is all about reinventing uh humanity uh you know sort of grows out of uh, transhumanism which is you know is believed by some to to have gnostic uh qualities um i, I don't know if necessarily that's true I, I think that the term gnostic tends to get stretched beyond recognition but you know i mean the fact that uh i think it's become clearer and clearer to everyone all the time that we are living in in a in a world in which um, things are, are not what we had believed them here to sort of be, you know, and we're finding out more and more all the time about you know how involved you know like intelligence agencies are in in so many different fields where they don't belong and 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 on and on and on. So I, I think that. Um, you know, and again, one of the reasons that I wanted to sort of back this up, you know, I could have told this story uh, present day. I don't think like a rock star would have the same, you know, cachet <laughs> as it would in 1994. But I, I wanted to, and, you know, having read the book, you'll understand this, but I wanted to sort of get at what was um, undergirding a lot of the, uh, the techno-utopianism that was being rolled out at the time. Uh, through magazines like Wired and so on, uh, you know, this whole, you know, the internet culture, the dot-com boom, uh, you know, what was the underside of that? What was maybe the, the, the hidden agenda be- behind that moving, you know, behind this whole rollout, this massive uh, corporate enterprise? I mean, what what exactly was, was driving this? And, and uh, you know, that's something that I, I uh, explicitly... Um, you know, touch on in the book, uh, you know, because as you know, having read the book that a, um, you know, one of these big tech companies does uh, play a major role in the story. So um, I mean, that was, uh, you know, very deliberate because, you know, first of all, I don't want to have um, a story where um, everybody's just on their smartphones, um, you know, checking their Twitter feeds. You know, I, I, it's, I can't, I can't stand, uh, you know, watching <laughs> television shows now because everybody's just pulling out their smartphone. You know, whenever the writers come to any kind of impasse that they can't solve, it just drives me crazy. <laughs> and you know, so I wanted to, you know, pre, you know, get behind that. I mean, the characters do have cell phones, but you know, they don't really use them that much. You know, they don't use them. They don't even use them like, you know, on the X Files where Mueller and Scully pull out the cell phones. You know, from the very first. <laughs> episode you know you know any any time you know the story needs to sort of cross the river 
so to speak. And I didn't want to do that. I, I, I don't, I, I find that very frustrating. I, I don't, I don't find that dramatic. I don't find it dramatic when, you know, expositions can come through your phone. Uh, I, 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 it feels very, um, it feels like a cheat to me, you know? No. And a lot of times they couldn't even get a signal, which was definitely very mid nineties too. So, and, uh, there yeah. was something, <laughs> sometimes there were things that, cause, uh, there were things I was wondering, are these things, and I could tell some things were fiction, not fiction, historical, but for example, there was one where you, you talk about this report from Iron Mountain that claims society should be in perpetual war. Uh, was, is this true, Chris? Or this that is more true. like, that yeah. is true. I thought it was maybe some sort of like, uh, 1984, the, we don't want to stop war, just war just is. So this is true. That that was chilling. Well, I'll tell you something. That that had come out in the 60s. And, um, you know, it, as I mentioned, I mean, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson thought it was real. And John Kenneth Galbraith thought it was real. And then uh, in, in the 70s sometime, some, obviously some mockingbird character just came out and said, Oh, that's not real. I, I wrote that as a, um, as a satire. But of course, if you, if you actually read the report from Iron Mountain, it doesn't read anything like a satire. I, there's nothing satirical about it. There's no, uh, you know, it's not like Dr. Strangelove or something. I mean, it, it's very dry. It's very hard to read. It's very sober. It's very, um, meticulous and, uh, it is very chilling. Uh, and you know, you can probably get it, any number of places online, but, uh, yeah. So I did want to, you know, embed a lot of that kind of material in there. Um, you know, that, that, uh, and, and, and there is, um, you know, plot points that are kind of based on that. And, and, and again, I want, I wanted to be as real as possible because, um, I wanted to write a story that, that could happen, you know, or maybe it did happen. I don't know. You know, it's like, I wanted to write a story that, uh, you know, draws the reader in as much as it can, because it feels and smells and sounds real. And, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for, to, to amp it up and, and, and sort of cartoonify a lot of things. And, and that might make a more, I don't know, a more easy to write story or more easy to read story. But I, I wanted to avoid those things because, um, you know, they don't serve the purpose, you know. Well, I agree with you, Chris, and I enjoyed your novel. I look forward to the sequel. I want to see what Don Morton's up to with Darja and Porter and those guys. And, uh, Fighting the good fight, and I think we should take example from them. You said, "Make take a stand, fight the good fight, keep the faith, finish the race," as the Epistle of Timothy says. But uh, that is something we keep doing, and we keep hammering away. But I think we've come to the end of the interview. First of all, Vance, thanks for keeping us company on this journey. Oh, um, you're very welcome, and Chris, good luck with the book. Thank you very much, sir. And yeah, Chris, thank you again for coming on Aeon Bytenostic Radio, as I say. It's always a pleasure to have you on, and we look forward to the next time, and good luck with your novel. I am honored, sir. Always very deeply honored. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our interview with Chris Knowles, 
On his debut novel, he will live up in the sky. In our second part, we get more Secret Sun awesomeness. Chris talks mucho más about Gnosticism in general, as well as conspiracy culture in general. He intimately shares his days as a musician and relates the horrors of the music club scene, past and present. Chris gets philosophical and advises on how to survive these Gnostic times and a Philip K. Dick world. You'll also hear a lot on the spiritual battle raging around all of us, as well as Chris Cornell of Soundgarden, Philip K. Dick, and how not to compromise with the Archons and keep your true identity alive. Very useful Gnosis. So please become an AB Prime member or a patron at Patreon for the complete heretical enchilada. Let's keep growing this red pill cafeteria. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you get your spirit back. A mere $5.99 a lunar cycle with many benefits. And some of these invite you to become part of a growing Gnostic community. And I should mention that, after almost three years, the price will go up at the beginning of 2020. Only a buck, however. You get the same benefits at Patreon, but you can pledge per content whatever you want. Beyond full episodes, you'll get full access to our new Discord channel and the archives with more than 450 episodes with the best and brightest in Gnosticism, Western Esoterica, and Free Thought. And full episodes of my vlog, The Abraxas Brief. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group where I stream The Abraxas Brief live and answer questions. And we have some truly intriguing conversations from an amazing community that includes past guests like Nicholas Laus, Robert Price, Tim Freak, Lawrence Gallian, Edward Pandemonium, and others. And I'm always there to address your issues and give you the latest on Gnostic news around the universe. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really keeps this blasphemy going. So please support this media you won't find anywhere else on the internets. Even in the physical world, that meat space. Or support Chris by buying his novel and other books. We are the last stand against the world going completely dark as the Demiurge smothers imagination, individuality, and consciousness in the last days of humanity. Let's go live up in the sky, as I know we can, and do so many wonders. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.